Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because He trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, which gives us the opportunity to simply identify, name, admit, or acknowledge our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood. And then at that instant, we are forgiven and cleansed, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our spiritual advance. Let's bow our heads together. A few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, that we have this wonderful privilege to gather together this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We are reminded that the study of your word is the highest form of worship, that it is the study of your word under the filling of the Holy Spirit that enables us to assimilate divine truth, that we may be able to grow and mature as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is your word that is the basis for edification, for growth, for strength. It is your word that is what the Holy Spirit uses to produce in us spiritual maturity. Father, again, we pray for our nation, continue to pray for its uh, safety, its security. We continue to remember the troops that are overseas, that you would watch over them, especially those related to this ministry, that you would uh, keep them safe. We pray that they might, that believers who are overseas, who are in the military, that uh, would have tremendous opportunities to witness to fellow soldiers, to be a solid testimony of the truth of your word and of the importance of Bible doctrine. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this morning, that we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I got back from Kiev without any mishap uh, this last Friday afternoon. And unlike previous trips overseas, this was a trip that was not marred by any uh, real problems, any mishaps, technical problems. In the past, I've always had some sort of glitch with the computer or something of that t- type, and I have learned over the years how to prepare for these things. So this time I took an extra hard drive that was backed up completely compared to the one I had. So I, anything went wrong, I just replaced a hard drive and keep right on going. Nothing went wrong. I had, I made backup copies of every document, every PowerPoint presentation, emailed them to three or four different people, uh, had three or four CD backups. So that if anything went wrong with my computer, I would just switch to Jim Meyer's laptop and just keep right on going. So I didn't have any trouble. However, Jim's computer, which I was using, crashed on the third day. But other than that, we just didn't have any any problems whatsoever. And everyone there at at uh, Slova Boja, which is the Word of God Church, uh, sends their gratitude for uh, letting me go over there for the last two weeks and teach. It's exciting to go over there and see the growth in the church over the last uh, really two or three years. But one of the exciting things is how many young people there are in the church. Eighty uh, percent of the people there, the attendance there now on Sunday morning is well over a hundred, not counting kids, and eighty percent of them are probably twenty-something. And they so there's a lot of enthusiasm, there's a lot of searching, there's a lot of questions being a- asked, and whenever you get a congregation that has a lot of young people like that, that always creates a, a certain energy. And I taught both Sundays, Sunday morning, Sunday night. First week I was there, I taught uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night as well. The subject was on spiritual life, and I did basics on the spiritual life and then went into various uh, passages on the faith rest drill, basically what I did here last summer in our third John study. 
And then I taught again uh, this last Wednesday night. In the morning at the class with the with the uh, Bible college students, there are 12 students there. This is a, I would say, 60% of them were new students from last year. It's basically a two-year curriculum that, that Jim has, and his purpose is to train these men so that they have some ability to go out and handle the Word and teach uh, in a congregation. So it's an intensive training over this two-year period, unlike what you find in many of the uh, attempts to create Bible colleges and seminaries over there by Americans. Of course, we, we're exporting our shallow, superficial theology as well as uh, our shallow, superficial training for pastors. So many of these schools, the men are barely literate in the scriptures they haven't studied every book of the bible and jim and uh, and so they're not really prepared after two or three years to go out and pastor a church because they've been given as they are here mostly methodology and not content and they don't have a a heavy theology curriculum so in the two years that jim has them he tries to give them uh, exposure to every category of theology and one of the ways he does that is to have various pastors from America come over and teach these intensive two-week modules. Uh, last year I taught pneumatology. The year before I think I taught angelology and demonology. The year before that I taught spiritual life. This year I taught on Christology, uh, basically what we're covering in our second hour, although uh, I, I think... I'm not covering anything here, I'm not covering there, so you'll get the same material. And it gives these guys a real exposure to each branch of systematic theology. Beyond that, they're taken through two years of Greek and approximately two years of Hebrew. And that as well is taught by uh, Mark Musser, who works with Jim Myers over there, uh, helps to teach with that, plus there are... Uh, some Hebrew and Greek profs from Chafer Seminary and a couple of other schools who go over there to teach and train them in the languages. And it's fortunate that there are some computer tools that are available that have Russian text as well as Greek and Hebrew. And Jim's done a tremendous job in getting uh, basic Greek grammar and Hebrew grammar material translated into Russian. I mean, that's a major thing to try to teach Greek without having... The manuals, the grammars, all of those tools, you have to get all those things translated. And the Lord has just blessed in a tremendous way that ministry with two uh, young women who are quite adept in, in English and and uh, and these languages, and they're both and they're in their sisters. And one is Oksana, who covers uh, Jim's, uh, who's Jim's secretary, and does some great things with his PowerPoints, visuals, and administration, and speaks English as well as uh, any Americans, probably better than most American speakers. And her sister, Bogdana, who is George Meisinger's secretary at Schaefer Seminary. And Bogdana was able to come over here about six or seven years ago on a student visa to go to Biola and went through Biola, studied Greek and Hebrew there, and she, she is uh, very adept at learning languages. And then she started going through Chafer Seminary, and she's translated uh, a couple of basic uh, Hebrew grammars into Russian and Greek grammars, and it does a lot of the more technical translation. So that's just been a tremendous help. There's so much that's involved in just doing the logistics and administration for something like this. Jim has been there now for 10 years, 7 years in Kiev, and it's incredible to see all that has been accomplished primarily through him in just this time, uh, getting other books, theology books, uh, some of the basic books that uh, Pastor Theme has written, uh, my book on spiritual warfare translated into Russian and made available to these, these students so that they have resources to use. Plus, I took... Um, uh, some of uh, Charlie Clough's material on Christology had that translated. Uh, there's about an 80-page notes that Jim had done, taken from various tapes from uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, had those translated into Russian, plus uh, Charles Ryrie's basic theology book. So I gave them about 40 or 50 pages of reading to do every night, which is which is something I haven't been able to do in the past because there just wasn't that much available in uh, in Russian. 
So we got a lot accomplished, and, and I think it was a very profitable time for the students. And, of course, I always enjoy the time. I think it's a great refresher for me to go over there personally to spend the time with, with Jim. I learned about five things that I can do on the computer that I didn't know before that save a lot of time. It's worth the price of the airfare over there and back alone, not, not counting all of the spiritual benefits. So Jim and I spend a lot of time uh, in our spare time when I'm not teaching in the morning, three hours in the morning and two hours at night. We spend some time together just uh, taking apart different passages of Scripture, uh, working through the exegesis of the passage. There are very few people in this country who have come out of doctrinal churches or anything else that have the ability to really sit down and tear apart a passage in Greek or Hebrew. And even some of the younger guys that are coming up who have just been either just finishing seminary or just been out of seminary a few years don't have enough experience teaching or enough time in the Word to really be able to appreciate the uh, some of the deeper dimensions of some of these problems, trying to work through various nuances of meaning just simply because they're, they're still developing in their own understanding of the text. They can carry on great conversations in some areas, but Jim and I have just been around a long time, and so we have the ability to, to really uh, tear things apart and get into the text, and his theology is very solid. So that's always a, a profitable time. A couple of things we need to continue to pray for for that ministry. One is their need for a building. They need to get better facilities than they have. They've been meeting for the last uh, six or seven years at this, what would have been a school, the way the uh, many of these apartment areas are constructed over there. You have, they would have come in and built these huge apartment buildings in, in sort of a square fashion with a huge open area in the middle. Now, these walls that I'm drawing here from here to here might be five or 600 yards long. So this would be a huge open area. These buildings would be nine or ten stories high, and they'd house an enormous number, thousands of people living here. And they would build these, build within this block, uh, smaller two- or three-story buildings which would house their, their, their school. So all the kids who lived in these buildings would be an easy walking distance from the schools, and they wouldn't have to cross busy thoroughfares, that sort of thing, which is a great idea in theory. Of course, this was under the old Soviet economy. And then as they've grown, they put in other buildings inside these squares, and it's that each each area probably would house around five, six, eight thousand people. So it's a real lesson in urban planning there. And Jim has one of those that's actually rented by another church that is a rather a, a, a huge church, the Russian church that meets in another part of town, but that's where they have their offices. So uh, Jim's church is able to rent space, but a new law that's been passed there is uh, are, is beginning to be enforced is to keep uh, religious organizations from meeting on government property. Sounds American, doesn't it? So the, these, this other church that rents it for administration purposes isn't being threatened because they're not having church services there, but they're afraid that uh, the government might come after them because the Slovoboja church is meeting there on Sunday. So Jim is there. They've already said they want him to move and find a place. So they've been looking for buildings. They also need a place where they have more room for their students. He's limited. And how much room they have for students? They have a three-room apartment that is that they rent. One room is a classroom. Another room, which would be the living room of the apartment, is used for just uh, sort of a day room for the students where they can meet and talk, and and it's not really set up for a classroom. Another room is set up as a computer uh, workshop area where they have four or five computers in there and train the students on how to use various programs and where they can type their papers and uh, do different things of that nature. 
But the one classroom won't hold much more than about 8 or 10 students, I mean 12 or 15 students, and there is going to be an increased need because the Campus Crusade Bible Institute there, the UBI or Ukrainian Bible Institute, is being shut down this year. Campus Crusade, the regional Campus Crusade director, for whatever reason, won't get into a critique of his reasoning, has decided that training future leaders in Ukraine is not part of their mission. In, in Ukraine, so he doesn't see a reason to have a Bible Institute, so they're closing that down. They've had about 20 to 30 students, and uh, Jim will, could be in a position to pick up some of those. Uh, he and Mark Musser have both taught many times at UBI, but he just doesn't have room to expand what he's doing. There's opportunity to expand, but no room, so we need to pray for a building uh, we need to pray that uh, we might be able to work out details on taking another group over next summer as we did this last summer. I have already had some inquiries from uh, people who aren't local, some tapers out there who said, hey, I heard about that trip last year. Uh, I would like to go. I've got a college-age uh, son or daughter who's interested in going, and are you going to do that again? So I talked to Jim about it, and we're going to try to work out the details, so we need to pray about about that. And then a third thing that a question that has often been asked me and actually was asked me about four or five times in the last week is is how do you finance this trip how was this trip uh, made possible financially and one of the reasons I'm addressing that is because there are other pastors who are going over there and I know that some folks from their churches also listen to tapes from from a Preston City Bible Church and so I need to encourage them to financially support their pastor in going over there, these uh, going over to Ukraine is not a very expensive proposition, all told. Airfares usually runs around $800. That is from Boston. I don't know if you're flying from Houston or L.A. or Seattle. It might be different, but flying from here, it's about $800 round trip. And uh, a man who works with Jim, who's from Houston, uh, has rented a, an apartment over there, which is where we stay. And he has plenty of room. And so there's not an overhead cost. It's not like having to pay for hotel bills every night. And we cook our own food, although I like to go out to a few restaurants there in Kiev. That's always uh, interesting to eat Ukrainian food. Sort of never know what you're getting. But it's not that expensive. Now, in April... I will be going back over to the former Soviet Union the last two weeks of April. And that trip will be a little more expensive because of the uh, nature of this trip. I was invited by a group called East-West Ministries. I was originally founded by Joseph Dillow. Some of you are familiar with his book, Reign of the Servant Kings. Originally founded by him as BEE a number of years ago. When the wall came down, he moved to Taiwan, and, and some of his people maintained that ministry as East-West Ministries, and they're planting seminaries and Bible colleges, etc., throughout the old Soviet Union, and they got a hold of a copy of my spiritual warfare book, and I was invited to come over there and teach on spiritual warfare to two different groups of pastors, one in in St. Petersburg area and another down in the Moscow area. Now, this is different from going with Jim because I'm going to have to stay in a hotel the whole time, and, and we'll probably have to eat out most of the time, so that's going to be a more expensive trip. But the Lord has been very gracious in terms of my own support. The first few years we did this, there was usually one or two individuals individuals who put up most of the money, and the Lord was just very gracious to provide supporters of that nature, and each year it was somebody different. It wasn't always the same individual. And this year, because the Lord has been so gracious in providing finances for uh, Dean Bible Ministries, we were we had the money in the account to just take care of this last trip straight out of Dean Bible Ministries. But not every pastor has a tape ministry of that nature. Not every pastor who does has the resources, so they need to be supported by their local congregations in covering expenses of trips of this nature. But as always, it's it's... I'm not saying this to raise money. I'm not saying this to uh, tell people they need to start giving for these things, but to express the fact that these things don't just happen. Uh, there's sometimes some of these trips may run as high as three or four thousand dollars for some folks, and they can't 
take that. Most of these pastors that go over there are in churches that don't pay them the kind of money where they can just reach into their pocket and pay for a trip like this. So individual believers need to be involved in supporting this. Jim Myers Ministries doesn't pay for it out of their resources. However, there can be financial gifts made to Jim Myers Ministries that cover some of the costs for some of these individuals that, that go over there. So that's pretty much the my report. I wanted to show you a few pictures just to show you what was going on. This was a classroom where I taught each night, uh, one of the uh, rooms in this uh kindergarten building that I spoke of earlier, and just some of the people as they were coming in and uh, getting ready for class. This is the classroom where the students are meeting while I was teaching. You can see my laptop in front of me and the LCD projector on on the left, and that shows most of the students in there. They were just coming in in the morning, so I was. They were preparing for their pop quiz. I gave them a good pop quiz every morning on their uh, reading assignment the night before. There I am teaching, and Margaret, translator, sitting. Well, you can't see that one very well at all. Uh, how's this? There, that shows up a little bit. I don't know what the. Re- What's going on with the sound? Yeah, okay. I don't know how to increase that resolution. Can you all see that okay? It's a little looks a little dark, a little blurry. This is the just after church, so you can see a good group of people there. There were about oh, a little over 100 there on Sunday morning, and you can tell they're the ones you can see are mostly young. backwards. There we go. This, these two men are two of the students. The one on the on your left is Ulan. He is from Tajikistan, and Ulan is going to be going back home in a probably six months. He probably knows more about the Bible than anybody else in Tajikistan. Tajikistan is somewhere north of Afghanistan. I think there's another country between Afghanistan and Tajikistan. Then you get into Kazakhstan. It's one of the, one of the Ikistans. But he is, uh, uh, he comes out of a Muslim background, was led to the Lord a few years ago, and he's been quite a culture shock for him to go to Ukraine and study. You know, we never realize how influenced we are by the culture around us. And he comes from an Asian culture, and in that culture they don't have uh, furniture in the homes. You go to places in Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, uh, uh, Afghanistan, they don't have, uh, people won't have furniture in their homes, they just have mats on the floor. And so Jim told me after he and his, after Ulan and his wife had moved there, they invited Jim and Phyllis over for dinner and they went in and they had taken all their furniture out of the house and stuck it out on the balcony and they were just sat on the floor and slept on the floor and, and that was their culture and they were very unhappy and they've had a miserable time because it, the, the culture is so radically different. One of the problems is the things they eat. You just can't go down to the market in Ukraine and buy uh, horse meat and goat meat, which is what they tend to live on in that Asian culture. So you can't go buy a horse head and fix a fancy meal for your guests and serve them a horse head. You remember the picture of that when we were in Kazakhstan a few years ago. So that's been very tough, plus there's a lot of uh, ethnic prejudice between the European Ukrainians and the Asians. So he feels that because he looks so obviously Asian that uh, he feels that. But uh, it works both ways. Jim said he's had to talk to Ulan a couple of times uh, because of his prejudice in the other direction. So it's a real challenge. Here are just some other pictures of people in the uh, in the church. There's Ulan with me again and Here's a picture. How cold. it wasn't that cold there. It was 30 degrees colder here. Just thought you'd want to know that I got a chance to warm up while I was over there. Temperature got up to 40 degrees this last Thursday. Uh, the trouble with that is when you have to walk everywhere and it's been cold. Uh, the middle weekend it was almost as cold as it was here, 
then when it warms up, everything turns to slush and water. And when you have to walk in it, then you walk a mile, just about everything's at least a mile, a mile and a half. By the time you get there, your feet are just soaked. And so that was, that got kind of miserable by, by Thursday. There we go. So we had a fine time, good time teaching the Word and studying the Word, and the students are extremely, uh, extremely responsive and interested in studying the Word, and all of these students are involved in uh, many different ministries. And that is, uh, that's remarkable. They get involved in ministries with children at the cancer hospital, with, uh, doctors. There's a Christian medical society that meets, uh, regularly. And so students will go and, and, uh, teach at the Christian medical society. They get involved in, uh, work at the orphanages, but they're constantly going out evangelizing and witnessing and just on an individual basis getting involved and active ministry. Now, there's a picture of me with all of the students as we finish things up. That is, that's Oksana, that's Jim's secretary. Okay? That should cover that. Those are old pictures. We don't want to, there. Okay, time to get into our lesson this morning. First Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 and following. Now, as we get into chapter 14, we're continuing our, the study of tongues. Tongues has become an issue, the spiritual gift of languages, that is, is a major issue in the Corinthian church. Now, I want to remind you of some background uh, issues. In 1 Corinthians 12, we began our study of spiritual gifts, and we saw that the Corinthians had placed an inordinate emphasis on spiritual gifts and their role in the spiritual life. They emphasized the possession of certain spiritual gifts as indicative of spirituality. That same idea is mirrored in the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement, as I pointed out many times. They think that if you have the spiritual gift of what they call tongues and or uh, healing, that that indicates that you are a more spiritual individual. Paul straightened out the Corinthians in chapter 12, emphasizing the fact that there are numerous spiritual gifts. Every believer has one or more spiritual gifts. These are given at the instant of salvation, at the time that believer is baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. That spiritual gifts operate within the context of the body of Christ and therefore are unique to the church age. Even though there are some similarities in a couple of these gifts, such as healing or prophecy, there's these similarities with things that have happened in other dispensations. The healings that occurred in other dispensations, prophecy that occurred in other dispensations, miracles that occurred in other dispensations were not functions or operations of a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift, by definition, is a spiritual enhancement given by God the Holy Spirit to the believer at the at the moment of his entrance into the body of Christ. The body of Christ did not begin until Pentecost, uh, Pentecost of 33 A.D., and therefore spiritual gifts are limited in operation to the body of Christ and to the church age. Now, when I went through the gifts, I made a, a note that there was a difference of two kinds of gifts. The first kind is a uh, called a... We'll just divide them into temporary and permanent. And temporary gifts included such gifts as the gift of apostle. An apostle was someone who was directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to new communities and to establish churches. And apostles had authority over all believers in the uh, church in the beginning of the church age. The gift of apostle disappeared at the end of the first generation. Part of its requirements was that you had seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, you had heard his teaching, and you had been directly commissioned by him. So the gift of apostle disappeared at the end of the first century, as well as the gift of prophecy. Now, these two gifts were communication gifts. 
that were given to the early church, and they were revelatory in their emphasis. That means they were designed to communicate doctrine that was not yet inscripturated. This was a period when the canon of the New Testament was still being developed, and so the everyday believer did not have access to church-age mystery doctrine yet. Church-age doctrine was just being revealed and developed in the Pauline epistles and the Petrine epistles and Johannine epistles. And so in a different situations, in different churches, they needed uh, direct information from God. And this was supplied through the gift of apostle and the gift of prophecy. In terms of permanent get, spiritual gifts, in the realm of communication, you had the gift of evangelist and the gift of pastor-teacher. These are permanent gifts, and they are primarily designed to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And they are designed to communicate. The evangelist communicates uh, the gospel. The pastor-teacher teaches the word, but both are designed to train other believers. So evangelists not only are involved in evangelism, but they should be involved in training believers who don't have the gift of evangelism on how to effectively present the gospel. Then you had other gifts, such as sign gifts, that were temporary. These sign gifts were such as to give credibility to the apostles when they came into town to signify that they were uh, being led by God and that they had a message for God. And so you had various sign gifts such as miracles, healing, things of this, this nature. Now the gift of languages or tongues, as it's translated, and I try to refer to it as the gift of languages, was the ability to speak in a human language that you did not know or that you did not come to know through the normal uh, language acquisition process. In other words, it was instantaneous and you suddenly began to speak in some language that you didn't know. You didn't even have to know what kind of language it was you were communicating in. But there would be somebody there who either knew that language or there would be someone who had the gift of interpretation. The gift of interpretation. Now, tongues was not a communication gift per se. In other words, its purpose was not for revelation. The purpose of tongues was not given to reveal new truth. It was given, as we will see in this chapter when we get down to uh, verse 20 and following, that its purpose was to signify uh, judgment. So you had two sign gifts, miracles and healings, that were designed to give credibility to the apostles. This uh, working of miracles and gift of healings served as a calling card for the apostles when they came into town. The tongues was not directed as a sign to the hearers in that way. The gift of languages was designed to be a sign to Jews that judgment was coming on Israel because they had rejected the Messiah. It was prophesied as such in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, and we will get into the details of the purpose for tongues next Sunday morning. But for now, we're in the first 20, or verse, first 19 verses of chapter 14, and the purpose of these verses is to provide regulation the regulation, the rules for operation for the gift of languages in a local congregation such that uh, would pretty much shut down whatever was going on in Corinth. Remember, this was a time when uh, tongues was, or the gift of languages was still valid, and there might have been some folks in the Corinthian congregation who could speak, who had the gift of languages, so Paul couldn't say, 
cut it out, don't do it, it's not valid. He had to deal with it in a sophisticated manner that laid down regulations that would exclude the counterfeit and false use of so-called tongues versus the legitimate gift of languages. And not understanding that is one reason there are uh, a lot of problems and confusion in interpreting certain passages in this chapter. So we have to work our way through it verse by verse to make sure we understand what Paul is saying. Now, there's one other thing we have to understand by way of background, and that is the background of the Corinthians. They were involved in what we know as mystery religions. Mystery religions, and this included the worship of Dionysius, and it also included the worship of what was known as the Sibylle Attis cult. Now, this was a fertility cult that came out of Phrygia in Asia Minor. And Sibylle was the fertility goddess, and Attis was her consort. And each fall, Attis would die, and then he would be resurrected in the spring, come back to life. But one of the ways in which you would worship Dionysius or, or Sibylle, a couple of other cults that were operational at that time is to get involved in some sort of orgy where the worshipers would work themselves up into a frenzy where the God would begin to, and I'm going to put that God in quotes there, the God would enter, his spirit would enter into the individual worshiping him, and they would communicate with that God in what we would call ecstatic utterance. It just gibberish. It was just emotional gibberish that they identified as spirituality. And if you reach this state where you were so consumed with the God that you spoke to him in ecstatic utterance, then you were considered to be very spiritual and very blessed by God. And so you would sing in, uh, in the, these gibberish uh, tones, and everybody would be impressed with how close you were to the God. So this is the background, and to get into these mystery religions, you had to uh, go through various initiatory rites, which meant you had to learn the mysteries, that is, the hidden secret things uh, of these particular cults. Now, if you don't understand this vocabulary, especially mystery in this sense, then you're going to completely miss the boat when you read 1 Corinthians 14. Now, it's not that difficult, but what we have to realize is that Paul is facing a congregation loaded with people who brought all this mystery religion baggage with them into the Christian life. And they have let this pagan background shape the way they're understanding what Paul has has uh, taught them. Now, that's not any different from people today. People throughout uh, evangelicalism in America have run away from thinking. The last thing they want to do is think or think about their thinking, and so what they do is they take all of their psychobabble, self-absorbed uh, baggage from their pagan background into the church, and then they try to uh, reinterpret or they do reinterpret all of Christianity in terms of this self-absorbed, uh, psychologized, emotional uh, uh, frame of reference that they got from their paganism rather than getting rid of all of that cultural thinking. See, this is the same problem these students have in Kiev. And Ulan, especially a great example of this, was one day I was uh, teaching on the Trinity and the emphasis on not only the unity of the Trinity, but the equality, what we've studied many times, that the Trinity means that each individual member of the Trinity is equal in essence. They are equally important, equally significant, equally valuable, but at the same time there is a subordination of rank and authority within the trinity there's an authority structure so that the father sends the or the father has begotten the son and the father and the son both send the holy spirit but that doesn't mean that the holy spirit isn't as as uh, uh, personally significant as the father uh, 
or personally significant as the son, that he is any less equal than father or son. Now, that has an implication for any social structure, that in any social entity, whether it is a corporation, whether it's a nation, or whether it is a marriage, where there is more than one person involved, there will be an authority structure, but there is also equality among individuals. Just because one person is in authority over another person doesn't mean they're mentally superior. They may be, but it doesn't mean that inherently. It doesn't mean they are a better person. It doesn't mean they are superior in any way. Just because the man is placed in authority in the marriage over the woman doesn't mean that he has has the right to uh, denigrate the woman, to abuse the woman, to lord it over the woman. Just because the man is placed in authority doesn't mean he is more of the image of God and she has less of the image of God. And yet historically that has been how some of this has been portrayed and has given rise to a tremendous amount of male chauvinism and uh, a denigration of women, and the whole feminist movement, as uh, horrible as it is, is a reaction to the abuse of a lot of idiotic males over the years. And this happens especially in some of these Asian countries and Muslim countries, and Ulan comes out of that background. He comes out of an Asian country, where uh, and a Muslim country, where women are not uh, uh, valued much. In fact, they're valued less than their their horses or their cattle. And so it, this has been a difficult adjustment for him. And this to to get rid of that baggage from his pagan past, and to learn that his wife has tremendous value and significance, and he can't just boss her around like she's some slave. And this is the, what we do in the, in the Christian life is realize that we come into Christianity with all this pagan baggage about things, and what we have to do in Christianity is, is learn how to get rid of all that baggage and replace it with divine viewpoint. And that doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen overnight. And it takes more than showing up at Bible class once a week for that to happen. If you're serious about the Christian life, you have to learn to think biblically, and that can only happen if you uh, dedicate yourself to a study of the Word of God and to completely overhauling your thinking and the way you think and understanding uh, the way you think and how your culture thinks. Just like any missionary goes into another culture, they have to become students of that culture so that they can learn how to uh, nuance certain things that they teach so that it has a better uh, impact on the on the students. And sometimes you can get caught in a real trap uh, there, as you can here, if you say certain things a certain way and it's interpreted or heard uh, wrong because of the cultural background from which that person uh, comes. So this was a problem in Corinth. They were they were practicing pseudo tongues. They were practicing the ecstatic gibberish of of uh, the pagan mystery religions inside the church. So Paul has to correct this, and he begins in verse one by telling them by giving them two commands. And this morning we're going to go with a new Bible program where I'll put the scripture up on the overhead so we can. Uh, see this, see the scripture as I'm discussing it. The initial command is to pursue love. Now, fit that into the context. We just finished chapter 13 where Paul had taken what appeared to be a digression, discussing the uh, virtue of love in the Christian life. And he ended chapter uh, 12 with the statement, but earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now, if we look at that verse in 1 Corinthians 12.31, we discover that the word there for desire is zelao. This is the same word that is used for desiring spiritual gifts in verse 1 of chapter 14, and it's used again in verse uh 12 of chapter 14. Verse 12 of chapter 14 states, Even so you, since you are zealous 
for spiritual gifts. That's that word zelao again. That's that word zelao in 1 Corinthians um, 14, 14, 12. So they are to be, they are to be zealous of spiritual gifts. That is, they are to desire spiritual gifts. This is a, a word for emphasizing that is a priority. There is nothing wrong with that. Paul is not uh, challenging them at all with their desire for spiritual gifts. But he says there's something more important. And what is more important is to pursue virtue love, which is what comes from which comes from spiritual maturity and spiritual advance. Spiritual gifts are given, distributed by God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. And so there is a, an importance to spiritual gifts. You don't have to know your spiritual gift to use it, but don't overemphasize it or are distorted out of proportion. But Paul's emphasis here is pursue love and desire the spiritual gifts. Now, it's interesting, the word he uses here for spiritual gifts, the word gifts isn't present, just the word spirituals, and it's in the plural. So yet desire, earnestly desire spiritual things, actually. And I think what he is saying there is earnestly desire the things of the Spirit, which includes spiritual growth, but also spiritual gifts. And then he says, but even more, the English translates that especially. It's the Greek word malon, and it means, but even more, that you may prophesy. Now, what is he saying here? He is going to say, his argument is that prophecy has to do with the disclosure of divine truth or Bible doctrine. And it is done in the native language so that people can understand what is said and it is usable for spiritual growth and spiritual advance. So the emphasis in verses 1 through 19 is on edification. And his basic argument is this, tongues doesn't edify, but prophecy does. And we have to watch because he is going to make some very interesting moves in this process. But his basic point is, Pursue and make a priority of edification, not the practice of a spiritual gift. Now, that slaps all the church growth people today right in the face because the church growth crowd today comes along and says, if you want to grow as a church, you have to emphasize spiritual gifts and you get everybody using their spiritual gift and and they'll all feel part of the team and they'll all feel like they can contribute and and so then your church will grow and that's they'll indicate is one of the five characteristics of a growing church and uh I always wonder because I grew up at a very large church and nobody ever emphasized that and made it made a point of training everybody in the spiritual gift the emphasis was on spiritual growth and if you are growing spiritually eventually you will function in your spiritual gift, whether you know what that gift is or not. And everyone who is growing spiritually will manifest their spiritual gift in some way. And if you don't think you are, maybe you're not growing spiritually. Well, first one, Paul says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, why does he say that? Verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So he begins this with the Greek particle gar, which indicates an explanation. He is explaining his statement of verse 1. And his explanation is, the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Now here is what you must notice. The word tongue here is the word glossa, and it is used in the singular. When Paul uses the word in the singular, he is referring to the pseudo-tongues of ecstatic utterance that's being practiced here in this congregation, with one exception, which we'll note at the end, but that has to do with an individual's using the gift, so that was following proper grammar. But in this section of, of chapter 14, when Paul uses the word in the singular, he is talking about the false use of the gift. When he uses the word glossa in the plural, He is talking about the legitimate expression of the gift of languages. And if you fail to note that, you just won't have a clue as to what's going on in this passage, and you'll think that every time he uses the word glossa, he's referring to the same thing. 
And that would lead to some real problems. So he says, for he who speaks in a tongue singular doesn't speak to men but to God. And the point he's making is not that, oh, this it's valid to speak in a tongue and to speak to God. This is where the modern charismatic has gotten completely off track. They think that this verse validates speaking to God in a prayer language. And that is completely absurd. Whenever we see people in the Scriptures pray, they pray in their everyday language. When Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed in uh, either Greek or Aramaic. He prayed in his everyday language. Jesus didn't pray in some special prayer language. There is no indication anywhere in Scripture that one should pray in a special uh, prayer language. Furthermore, if you look at uh, this verse in the English, it says, For one who speaks in a tongue, in an ecstatic utterance, because it's singular, we should translate it ecstatic utterance, for one who speaks in an ecstatic utterance does not speak to men but to God, and the English capitalizes God there. But I think that's a mistake. In the Greek, you have the word theos, but it lacks the definite article. Now, just because it doesn't have the article in the Greek doesn't mean it's it's not definite. The word theos can be definite without the presence of the Greek article because the Greek article doesn't function like the English article, and that's why you have the problem in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and theos there is anarthrous. That means it doesn't have an article. And the lack of the article has led the Jehovah's Witnesses to say that uh, John 1.1 should be translated, Jesus was a God. But in the construction of the grammar there, you have a what's called a predicate nominative on the other side of an equative verb. And so in order to indicate which of two nouns in the nominative case is the subject and which is the predicate nominative, you put the article with the subject and you leave the uh, predicate nominative without the article. And it has nothing to do with being a God. John 1.1 1, 1 simply means that Jesus is equal to God. But you don't have that kind of grammar here. And so the lack of the article with theos in 1 Corinthians 14.2 indicates that it should be translated, for one who speaks in an ecstatic utterance doesn't speak to men but to a God. And that is what they were doing. They were speaking to their God. So he is simply indicating this is the uh, the modus operandi of the pagan uh mystery religions. One who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to men but to a God. And then he explains what he means, for no one understands, no human being can understand, but in his spirit, that is, you know, in his immaterial part, here's a non-technical use of the word pneuma. Uh, Remember, pneuma can be used a number of different ways, ways in Scripture. Uh, it can be used to refer to the wind. It can refer to breath. It can refer to just that simple life-giving spirit in every human being. It can refer in a ge- generic sense to the soul, or that is the immaterial part of man. And so you have uh, passages in the Old Testament that speak about the spirit of Pharaoh and the spirit of others who are unbelievers, and you always have people who jump on those passages and say, Oh, you see, they have a spirit. Well, you, when you start talking about a human spirit versus a soul, and the, the, you're all you're all out of line here, because the Bible clearly says that that all human beings have a spirit. Well, that's where it's used in a non-technical sense, but you have to look at technical passages such as First Corinthians uh, two twelve through fourteen, where sukikos is contrasted with pneumatikos, and also passages like Jude 19, which it defines sukikos as not having a spirit. So it's very clear from those passages that when you use spirit in the technical sense of the human spirit, it is in contrast to having only a soul. So it's clear from Jude 19 that there are walking, breathing, living human beings who don't have a spirit. It never comes across in English translations, but in the Greek it's literally uh, sukikos defined as not having a spirit in Jude 19. But here we have just a generic use of the word, which is how the 
Corinthians were using the word. See, Paul is using their verbiage and throwing it back against them. And he says, for no one understands when you have this ecstatic utterance, because in your spirit, we might put that in quotes in English, you're speaking mysteries. In other words, this is mystery, religion, uh, kind of material. You're just speaking this ecstatic gibberish. He is not using the word musterion here to describe mystery doctrine. He is using it here the way they were using it in terms or with reference to their past in the mystery religions. Furthermore, another reason a prayer language cannot work in, and as, a, as a, an interpretation here is because this would lead to self-edification. And the purpose of a spiritual gift is to edify other believers. So you never use your spiritual gift to edify yourself. Now, I'm a pastor. I have the gift of pastor-teacher. I get in my study and I study the Word, and as a byproduct of the use of my gift of pastor-teacher, I am frequently, frequently edified. But that's not my purpose. If I were using my gift of spiritual, my spiritual gift of pastor-teacher to, to study the Word for my own personal benefit alone, then that would be an abuse of the gift. It would be self-centered arrogance. It would be carnality, and it would be uh, completely wrong. And that's what Paul's getting at here is when they were using the gift in this kind of self-absorbed way, it might have, they might have had some so-called benefit but it was such that completely negated the use of a spiritual gift. So you can't have a private use of tongues. That's excluded by definition. You can't have a gift of the language for personal edification. That's excluded by the use of the term. And then we come to verse 3. Paul says, but one who prophesies speaks to men for three things. First of all, edification. Edification means to build someone up spiritually. It's from the uh, Greek word uh, oikotome. The Greek word oikotome, the verb oikotomeo, to uh, build up, to uh, strengthen, is the idea of building up or strengthening our soul as a result of Bible doctrine. Then the next word is exhortation, the Greek word uh, paraklesis from the verb parakaleo, which in some passages indicates comfort or encouragement that is based on uh, knowledge of doctrine. And then the last word here, translated consolation, is the Greek word paramuthia, which is very similar to uh, parakalesis and has to do with comforting someone in times of difficulty through the absolutes of God's word. So prophecy here indicates special revelation from God in a situation that is going to produce spiritual growth, uh, encouragement to the individual because of the absolutes of doctrine and comfort in times of adversity and stress so that they can learn to utilize the problem-solving devices. In contrast, Paul says in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue, singular, therefore we should translate it ecstatic utterance. Uh, uh, now, let me say something here. I'm translating an ecstatic utterance in terms of English simply to to uh, clarify the meaning for you. The word glosa, glosa never is used to mean ecstatic utterance anywhere. I have never been able to identify that. They're calling it tongues, so Paul is using that vocabulary glosa back to them. They're saying, we're speaking in a tongue. He said, well, if you're speaking in a tongue, you're edifying yourself. He's throwing that word back to them. As it were, if we were writing this, we would put that in quotation marks. Now, I am utilizing a, a, a sort of literary license here to use this as ecstatic utterance just for your clarification. He's saying that, literally he's saying to them, one who speaks in a, quote, tongue, unquote, which is what you claim to be doing, edifies himself. See, they were claiming they were speaking in the biblical gift of languages. And he is saying, no, what you're doing, quote, speaking in a tongue, uh, your terminology, is simply self-edification. So when I translate this as speaking in an ecstatic utterance, just to keep things a little more clear for you. Uh, so one who speaks in what they were claiming to be tongues, 
edifies himself. So Paul is saying, look, what you're doing only edifies you. It's not edifying other members in the body of Christ. Therefore, it is not the operation of the spiritual gift. It's carnality. Is God going to bless and honor carnality? No, he's not. And in contrast to the so-called tongue speech, he is saying, but one who, he says in verse 4, but one who prophesies edifies the church. This is the issue. You go to any charismatic church and you start going through the regulations of, of, uh, uh, verse, uh, uh, I mean, of chapter 14 and start asking them questions like, well, how many people speak in tongues? The Bible says only three. You have more than that. Furthermore, the indication later on is that no women were allowed to speak in languages in the assembly. Furthermore, it was uh, never allowed for a prayer language or for self-edification. You go to any Pentecostal charismatic church in America practicing so-called tongues, they're violating all of those rules. Therefore, it can't be uh, from God. So in verse 4, he emphasizes the importance of edification, not self-edification, which comes from arrogance. And then in verse 5, he shifts from a singular to a plural. He says, now I wish that you all spoke in languages. See, this is where he goes to the legitimate use. He says, now I wish that you all spoke in languages. Now, does he mean that literally? Now, think about it. In chapter 12, he just got through saying not everybody has all, any of the spiritual gifts. Everybody has different spiritual gifts. No one spiritual gift is present in every believer. So he doesn't mean this literally. He is simply making a statement using hyperbole for the sake of argument. He says, now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. Now, if he were making a literal statement here, he would be contradicting what he said just two chapters earlier. What he's merely saying here by using this figure of speech is, that's great that you could speak in languages, the legitimate use of tongues, but even more, you need to prophesy because that's where edification and spiritual growth comes from. Greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks legitimately here in languages unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. In other words, the point is there has to be understanding of the message in your native language. Otherwise, no spiritual growth takes place and it's just emptiness. It's just meaningless sound. So he begins to emphasize that. Verse 6, he says, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in languages, legitimate use of the term, it's the plural use of glossa, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? In other words, it won't be of spiritual value for your growth unless it's from one revelation, that is the use of revelatory gifts, prophecy, uh, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, or of knowledge, here that would be the gift of the word of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching. Those were four communication uh, gifts that involved revelation. Notice tongues is not one of them. Verse 7, yet he uses an illustration here for musical instruments. Even lifeless things such as musical instruments, i.e. a flute or a harp, which he mentions here, in what, even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? You've all seen a little kid pick up a, a musical instrument and just make noise, and there's no distinction of notes or sounds or melody. And it has no meaning. It has no value. It's just a cacophony. It's just emptiness. And that's what verse 7 is saying, is that unless you can distinguish notes and distinguish between eighth notes, quarter notes, triplets, and individual uh, tones, then it just becomes uh, a meaningless sound. He uses a second illustration based on that of the bugle in giving a bugle command in a military environment. If the bugler just makes a noise on the bugle without blowing it reveille or taps or charge or whatever the uh, distinct bugle command was, then the soldier would not know what to do, would not know how to prepare for battle. So there must be a distinct 
meaningful sound, otherwise there's no benefit to the listener. And in verse 9 he says, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? In other words, if you don't have uh, a clear, legitimate language being communicated, nobody's going to know what is being said. You're just speaking into the air. It's useless, it's meaningless, and has no value whatsoever. Verse 10, then he illustrates from all the different languages in the world, and in fact he changes the word here from glossa to phone. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages here, phone, in the world, and none is without meaning. So by changing to phone, he's not legitimizing their their misuse of tongues to describe uh, ecstatic utterances, and, and he's not allowing them the room to say, well, it has some meaning, some value, even if you don't know what it is, Paul. He's saying, no, no legitimate languages all have meaning. They all communicate something. And then in verse 11, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. See, if you were a Greek, anyone who didn't speak Greek was a barbarian. They just sounded like they were saying bar, 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 just meaningless meaningless gibberish. And so Paul is saying, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, it's the same as how Greeks refer to uh, those who speak foreign languages. It's meaningless or just like a barbarian, uh, a non-Greek speaker. And he concludes, the one who speaks in something I don't understand would be a barbarian to me. Therefore, conclusion, verse 12, so also, since you are zealous of spiritual, and here he uses the word pneuma, not pneumatica, but pneuma, the word for spirit. So he says, since also you are zealous of spirit. Interesting. Notice I said earlier there were many different uses of the word pneuma. You have to look at each sentence, each use, and define by context what it means. And here he says he uses the word pneuma to refer to spiritual gifts. Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. The point is edification. The point is spiritual growth. Edification comes only through a study of the Word of God, and the Word of God is the means under the filling of the Holy Spirit for edification. This is what Paul emphasizes in Acts chapter 20:32, when he is addressing uh, the Ephesian elders, and he says to them, Brethren, so now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance which is among all those who are sanctified. It is the word of God's grace which has the ability to build us up, to mature us spiritually so that we can advance to spiritual maturity and be guaranteed an inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ, gold, silver, and precious stones, that we will be prepared to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Well, we didn't make it down to verse 19. We got as far as verse 12. We'll pick up in verse 13 next time as we focus on the purpose for the gift of spirit, uh, the, the spiritual gift of tongues, the purpose for tongues, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the clarity of what Paul says and to realize how important it is to get into the details of the text to understand precisely what is being said in the original languages. Otherwise, you can get off into many uh, distortions and many uh, misinterpretations and not properly understand what your word says. Father, we thank you that all of these things are the result of grace, your goodness to us based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uh, unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal de- eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right where you are, you can make a decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't need to uh, walk an aisle, raise your hand, make any kind of uh, overt gesture. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to reform your life. You don't need to straighten up anything or change anything other than your mind. 
You need to change from thinking that Christ is just another prophet, teacher, or good person to realizing that he is the Son of God who came to earth incarnate in the flesh and went to the cross to die as a substitute for your sins, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full so that there is nothing else you can do to gain or acquire salvation. All you need to do is simply believe, trust, rely upon Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. At that instant, you will be given eternal life, you will be justified, you will enter into the royal family of God, and you will have an eternal salvation that can never be lost. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied today. We pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.